Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. And if you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website, which will be linked in the show notes. I can tell you these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out, sign up for the newsletter, see what they're up to. They make this program possible, and we really appreciate it. So uh, I would strongly encourage you guys to uh, show them some love. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. Now, you guys would have no reason to know this uh, other than the fact I'm just a transparent host and uh, that's just the kind of host I am. But I'm actually recording this uh, podcast in the morning rather than the late evening. Uh, Easter weekend, a lot of scheduling conflicts, and I just couldn't get up here to do it at the usual time. So I've come in early on a Monday morning before all my staff meetings to knock it out. And uh, we'll see how my my energy levels are. Most people will not interact with me before about 9 or 10 a.m., generally speaking. So the fact I'm behind a microphone uh, talking to my 13 listeners, we'll see how this goes. You know, maybe I'll be good. Maybe maybe I'll just be uh, especially bitchy and cranky. We'll find out. Okay, next thing I want to talk about in our housekeeping section here is in early May, I would like to do another Q&A episode. I had a lot of fun with that the last time we did it, so I think that would be a fun thing to do here in a couple of weeks. So what I would encourage you to do is to send in your questions to jordan.driscoll at oggn.com. I'll uh, probably have a link to my email in the show notes there. Um, And yeah, if there's something you want to say or – you know, any questions you want to ask, you just want me to do an off-the-cuff response to, by all means, send them in. I'd be happy to take a look at those and um, tackle them. So, yeah, like I said, link in the show notes. Let me know. I think that's a lot of fun. We did that last time, and I think it'd be good to do it again. Okay. So, this week, uh, we've we've ended Jordan's ranting about historical stuff for the time being. Uh, we've done our three scandal episodes. We've done our uh, Woodrow Wilson hate episode. I feel like we've We're in a good place there. Uh, So we're going to kind of pivot back to some of the more modern geopolitical issues. And uh, this week, what I thought would be interesting to kind of switch our our gears into that that realm would be to use the U.S. News and Global Report's Top 10 Geopolitical Threats and Risks of 2023. Now, this article um, came out, like I said, from U.S. uh, News and Global Report, and they're – 
probably more well known for putting out their top 10 list of best colleges and universities. So I'll be curious to see what they identify as their um, top threats. Um, I've not really read this in depth, and so I'm just kind of looking at the the bullet points here, and I'll I'll fire off my thoughts on it as we go, just to see um, you know how far how far. And granted, we're in April at this point, uh, at least as of my recording, so we're a couple of months in. We'll see if any of these have shaped out, or uh, you know what we think about them, and uh, also whether or not I think they have any kind of impact on the energy sector. So uh, without any further ado, let's dive into this. I've got my this morning. Uh, you know, I'm kind of kind of slumming a little bit. I just got some uh, some some Folgers, some of the regular blend Folgers. That's my coffee. Hmm. Yes, very very mediocre. Very good. It'll get by. It's all we can do today is just get by. All right, so number 10 on their list of geopolitical threats and risks of 2023 is number 10, global water shortages. Now, I um, I hadn't really noticed a water shortage, to be honest, and I live in, um, uh, in you know, West Texas, and so uh, there's not a lot of natural water floating around out here, but, you know, it comes, it comes from somewhere. We make it happen. Now, I'm the kind of guy that takes about 18 45-minute showers a day, um, so I don't know that I've noticed a water shortage, but I've certainly been consuming a lot more water than a fucking weeping willow, um, you know, so I don't know. Maybe if there is a global water shortage, I'm probably part of the problem, but um, one thing I will say is I have heard um, here and there people talking about a, a water shortage and concerns. And you always hear it coming from California and Nevada, you know, places where you'd expect it, places where you're putting golf courses in the middle of the actual desert. So that's not really a shocking revelation. Uh, that being said, it, it really hadn't occurred to me that it was a bigger issue for other parts of the world. Um, you know, I look at Lake Mead, and granted, that's a good example, right? Like it's supposed to get runoff from snow caps and that sort of thing in the what is it, the Rocky Mountains, and that's supposed to help fill up Lake Mead, and Lake Mead's in bad shape. I mean, Lake Mead is sitting at a mere 25% of its capacity right now, and um, yeah, I can see if this is not, you know, this article kind of mentions China's having some issues with their reservoirs not filling up and some other places in the world, so uh, that's interesting. I mean, does this affect the energy industry? Well, I mean, in the sense that, you know, a lack of water affects everybody in any industry, as long as they are a human being, then sure, yeah. But um, like I said, so far, it's certainly not been high on my list of big things. So eh, we'll see how that goes. We'll see if that has any kind of impact in 2023 specifically. Not sure that it will or won't. Um, interesting. Okay, moving on. Number nine. The rise of Gen Z. Now, aside from the fact that that, that title for that <laughs> bullet point is uh, horrifying. No, it's it's so so aggressive. The rise of Gen Z. It sounds like it should be a Walking Dead spinoff. Um, and I suppose in some ways it probably is. I mean, you know, hey, Gen Z, right? I mean, these guys are always on their screens. You know, not like us millennials who never touch a screen, right? Um, yeah. So Gen Z is interesting because Gen Z is, you know, anybody born, I think it's in the mid nineties to the early 2010s. And so at this point you've got sort of the first, um, first five or so years of Gen Z starting to hit the workforce. They're starting to hit the voting booths. Um, there'll be a, a bigger player in this, you know, at least in this U S election. 
Um, and yeah, I do think I like the fact that Gen Z is called a threat. Um, that kind of gives you an idea of the cultural divide that is brewing globally. Um, yeah, that's just really funny to me that they that they put them on a, a list of geopolitical threats. Like, what are we what are we going to do? Like, send out death squads to round up Gen Z and whack them so that you know the the boomers and the Gen Xers and the millennials can keep a hold of every, like what what are we going to do here? Um, but I I do get where they're going with this. I mean, Gen Z is way more progressive. They are way more plugged into things, um, and you know politically they they are a shift from a lot of what you know millennials grew up with and a lot of where boomers and gen xers are kind of at and i think as they start becoming a louder voice in elections and in the workforce that's going to see some very significant culture shocks between these generations um you know and i've, I've talked about this on multiple occasions on this program um and I'll talk about it again, there's a, a, at least in the U.S., there's a pretty significant, um, what I would call, issue brewing. Um, the political parties, the two-party system we have is very much, each of them is facing a, a crisis of identity, and they're facing the exact opposite problem. The Democrats have got a tent that's way too big and has way too many voices vying for um, primacy, in my opinion, with no clear direction and and nobody can really corral and get everyone on board. You've got everything from the uh, slightly left of center uh, new Democrat sort of faction. And then you've got everything as far as the democratic socialists uh, on the far end. And it's really hard to get that many different voices corralled together under one party. The Democrats have, have just got too big of a tent. On the other hand, you've got the Republicans who have a very serious problem. And that is, they focus very heavily on their core base, and that core base is an older generation that is shrinking, and they are alienating the younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, and so forth. And I think the Republicans have kind of spent too much time worrying about you know trying to fight to win elections today that they're throwing away elections down the road um, by by really focusing on trying to mobilize the existing base rather than grow a new base. Um, or widen it out. Their tent is too small, whereas the Democrats is way too big. So, you know, I am. I think this is going to be a problem that's going to affect the Republicans more immediately than it's going to affect the Democrats, but the Democrats are only an election cycle or two behind having their own uh, major identity crisis. And I, and I know I've harped on that a couple of times now, but I believe it. I just think it's true, and I think that it's not something that's being taken seriously enough, and it all kind of falls into this. Gen Z is just in a very different mental headspace than the prior generations where they're at now. I mean, they're probably closer to millennials in a lot of ways. Um, but again, they're, they're the generation that was born in a world where there were always smartphones. There was always the internet. There was always the iPad and the, you know, all of that. And so uh, that just creates a very different vibe that I don't think, um, yeah, that I, I think it's going to be very disruptive in the political and the workplace. I mean, they have a lot of, different thoughts about how workplaces should be and what they will and won't do. And they've had a very different experience than older generations that came up in different times. And, you know, that's always kind of the story, but 
But I do think with the proliferation of technology and the internet and and their opinions and voices getting out there and getting out there a lot louder than other generations did as early because of the proliferation of technology, that's going to be a factor that's going to have to be addressed. And I, I don't know that people are really spending a lot of time thinking about that as much as they should from a, you know, a corporate or a political standpoint. But hey, that's just my two cents. All right, number eight on the list of geopolitical threats is the polarization in politics in the United States. And yeah, I mean, the United States is the world's lone superpower if you don't count China yet, which I don't know if they're at superpower status yet, but they are well on their way. And don't worry, we'll talk more about China here in a few minutes. But at the end of the day, political polarization in the U.S. is probably as bad as I've ever seen. I mean, hell, we had the uh, the January 6th, the uh, storming of the Capitol building, which the last time any baddies got into the Capitol building was the War of 1812. So we've kind of had a while with that not really being a problem. At any rate, political polarization is at an all-time high in the U.S., and it does seem to be happening in more places across, across the globe. Maybe not quite to the same extent, but we're seeing it in uh, Turkey, Hungary. Uh, we're seeing it in Britain, or saying it in you know various other locations as well. France, for one, um, Italy, you know they're they're seeing some political polarization, and so it's it is an issue. And I think it kind of the U.S. is the world's remaining superpower. And um, what happens here, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, tends to reverberate across the globe. And I do think that's an issue. The Simple fact that, you know, and I already kind of talked about the politics in the U.S. a minute ago. I mean, I think there's just a massive divide between generations and between priorities and and all of this. And the reality of it is, at least in my opinion, the political parties in the U.S. spend more time fighting tit-for-tat battles with each other than trying to actually solve the real problems that they should be solving. Uh, Republicans ostensibly want smaller government, national defense, and more individual freedom. But the reality of it is the Republicans spend more time hammering on about uh, social moral issues that they care about than actually worrying about, one, not spending tons of money and keeping the the country safe. Um, that's just where their priorities are. And I think their priorities are mostly in the wrong place. You know, get back to the, get back to the base. Get back to individual freedom. Let people do what they want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Let people get back to um, back to their lives with a government that governs the least, governs the best. On the other hand, you've got the Democrats that have a much more hopeful and appealing message, which right now is playing really well with the younger generation. And, you know, but the flip side of that is, is that they're starting to fragment and splinter and there's a lot more different um, voices in that party that are kind of on the cusp of starting to pull it apart and stretch it beyond what any one party can hope to actually uh, – speak for. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the political polarization is becoming very problematic. And I think at some point, one of two things is probably likely to happen. I mean, granted, you're getting Jordan on his first cup of coffee in the morning, not in the evening. So we'll see how well my crystal ball is working. But mm. but realistically, I think one of two things kind of seems likely to me at this ungodly hour of the morning. When I say ungodly hour, I'm talking it's 8.30 a.m., time that's unacceptable for me to be uh, out and about at this hour. But I think item number one is you're either going to see 
the Republicans start losing election after election after election, and you're going to see the Republicans start taking some very massive changes in, in where, what their plank is, what their platform is that they stand for in order to try and get competitive again. You're going to see some pretty massive changes there. I think that's one option. Um, but I think it's going to take several pretty disastrous election losses before they get there. Um, on the other hand, I could see the Republicans and even the Democrats eventually splitting into multiple different parties because, again, there's just way too many um, elements that are vying for control of these institutions. So we could see the rise of third parties possibly. And I don't know which of these two scenarios is more likely or if it's another scenario that I'm not thinking about at this hour. But, um, yeah, I mean, something's got to give at some point. Um you know, I guess the, the option number three is just full-on civil war, which sounds absolutely terrible and like it's not a good idea, so let's not have any of that. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's a bit of an issue. I, I, you know, and I do think, you know, as we're starting to march towards yet another election cycle and we've got a former president indicted on criminal charges in New York and he's got a, a litany of other criminal charges waiting in the wings against him from various other um, courts – I think we're only going to see an increase in polarization uh, rather than a decrease until it hits some kind of apotheosis and what that will generate, what that will spark, what that will be the catalyst for. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like on the other side of this thing. So we'll find out. All right. Number seven, the decline in global development. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, so interestingly enough, it, it, global GDP has not gotten back to pre-COVID-19 levels. And so overall, there has been significantly less economic growth globally since the pandemic. And um, as a result, that has caused a lot of recession fears to be kind of floating around. People are a little concerned that there is a recession on the way. It's been something that's been talked about for a while now. And things like the Silicon Valley bank collapse have not done anything to uh, mitigate those concerns. So, yeah, overall global development, yeah, I can see that as an issue. And I do think that, um, you know, if we do slip into a recession that obviously impacts the the energy sector pretty significantly, you know, and honestly, just speaking of the energy sector, you know, rise of Gen Z, you know, I didn't really touch on this, but with their much more progressive slant on things um, and this whole aggressive move towards renewable energy and all of this, um, you know, Gen Z is going to wind up being another one of those kind of lost generations, I think, that doesn't want anything to do with oil and gas. And I think that's going to be a serious problem for the energy sector. Um, one of the, the things that I think oil and gas has done a very poor job of as an industry is uh, winning hearts and minds. It's just not so, you know, everybody <clears throat> takes for granted that oil and gas is important. And that's true. They do. But people in the oil and gas industry, all of us, and I mean, I'm as guilty of it as the next guy, but we tend to get very much on this high horse of you need energy. It's important. And you don't say we, we keep the world moving and we're important, damn it. And you just need to respect. And that's a very that, – that all may be true. We do need energy. Energy is important, all of those things. That's all accurate. But you're not going to win anybody's hearts and minds over. And at the end of the day, this is the generation of winning hearts and minds. And if we don't change the way that we think through these things, we're never going to win any arguments because arguments are not won 
with hearts and minds based on arguments of logic. They're based on appeals to emotion to a large extent. And that's something that as an industry, we have not done a very good job of leveraging. We've gotten that we've gotten beaten over the head with that by opponents of the energy sector. Um, and all we keep doing is trying to throw out this sanctimonious argument of, but you need energy and you have to have it. It's, it's important. Oil and gas is vaulted everything. It just, you don't know how important we are. Yeah, that's not going to win any hearts and minds. Okay. And at the end of the day, that's what we're losing on the PR front. And that's what we need to be focused on solving. Um, logic is not going to win this argument. This is not that kind of argument. Okay. Um, so anyways, I know I kind of went off on a little tangent there, but then Jordan Driscoll thought, there you go. Um, obviously energy is such a politically polarizing issue that the polarized politics in the U S obviously that's going to be impacted, especially when you've got one party that, you know, is doing everything in its power to be, you know, quote unquote pro energy. And then another party that is doing everything in its power to be, you know, super, renewables only and you know no oil and gas it's terrible we hate it blah 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 so yeah i mean there's massive impacts from both the rise of gen z and the political polarization in the u.s that that impact the energy sector significantly and likewise a decline in global development does have some impacts there as well right i mean if we do slip into a recession there's going to be less consumption which means less demand which means of course obviously uh that's going to have some pretty significant macroeconomic factors on the oil and gas industry, especially at a time when there is a huge and aggressive pivot towards renewables and, um, you know, also just a general global unpopularity of oil and gas. And again, oil and gas just does a poor job of marketing itself as, you know, an acceptable alternative or a responsible one. Um, you know, again, regardless of the facts and figures, we just don't do a good job of that. So here's what it is. Um, all right, moving right along. Oh, well, this is actually rather convenient. Number six is energy shortages. So one, as I just talked about, energy is a highly, I mean, it's funny that they, in this list, that's actually number six. That's, that's hilarious. Um, so to my mind, there's kind of three things that pop into this. I mean, one is the highly politicized nature of, of energy right now. I mean, we are a world that runs on energy, nothing, you know, from your watch to your phone, to your cars, to your home, to whatever you need energy for everything. I mean, hell, I've got so many computers in my office that it, you know, practically needs its own nuclear power plant to keep running. And, um, that's a bit of a, uh, you know, it just makes energy important. That's a big, hairy deal. So the politicization of energy, politicization of energy is is a significant issue um the uh, that has led to this hyper aggressive swing towards renewables and at the end of the day there are some issues with that the first is is the timeline for moving to renewables is probably much too short for where the world's at and there's still a lot of areas where that technology is developing now uh Necessity is the mother of innovation, as they say, and I think that's not going to hurt things. But I do think that there's enough geopolitical things happening in the world, you know, the war with Ukraine and you know, OPEC Plus's various maneuverings um, that that's caused enough destabilization that's really thrown things out of whack as far as his transitioning to renewables. And let's face it. 
there's a lot of technology and infrastructure that's just not there yet. I mean, hell, if we could, if I, you know, I'm, I, th- I think I've said this on the show before, but if I snap my fingers and said the U.S. has nothing but electric vehicles starting right now and just boom, magically, everybody's driving Teslas, that doesn't change the fact that we don't have fast charging car stations all across the country. We don't have, from a bare bones infrastructure standpoint, we don't even have a power grid that can handle that amount of draw on it. I mean, our power grid is very nearly a century old and has lots of lots of uh, foundational issues. It's just not meant for that kind of pull on it. And there's not been a ton of work done to address that issue in a satisfactory way. So there's a lot of core issues that people even that are pro-renewables, aren't even talking about in terms of what needs to happen to get the country to a point where that's even viable. And that doesn't even count the other parts of the world, especially the developing parts of the world where, you know, electricity-based vehicles is just an absolute crazy luxury that no one can conceive of. And petroleum-based vehicles are, you know, just sort of what's there and what they can get and and at the end of the day, significantly more affordable. So, yeah, energy has been thrown into a bit of a tailspin since COVID-19, the Russia-Ukrainian war, and the super hyper-political push for more renewables. And yeah, I do see that as being an issue. I mean, we're already seeing that being an issue in Europe right now with the, the gas lines being down and the huge amount of uh, addiction to cheap Russian natural gas and all of these things. I mean, I've talked about in, in previous episodes of this show, so you can go back and listen to those to hear a longer diatribe about this topic. But um, the point is, yeah, the technology is still developing. The push for renewables has been too aggressive, and it's way too hyper-politicized. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely see that as a major geopolitical threat for 2023. I mean, hell, that's even what our sponsor spends a lot of their time going on about is, is American energy independence. And, you know, I Yeah, there it is. 2023, man. We got it coming. All right. Number five, a highly politically isolated Iran. So I've I've touched on Iran uh, a bit in this show already. And obviously, you know, that's a thing. But yeah, 2023, I mean, we've already seen this. And obviously with Iran's oil reserves and, you know, their seat in OPEC and all that, there's there's a lot there that's – that's that's concerning both for the energy sector and yeah, just from a global geopolitics sector. So one, they've you know started openly selling weapons to Russia. Um, they have a nuclear program which is very nearly ready to produce a uh, functional nuclear weapon, and that's concerning to be frankly honest. And at the end of the day, uh, and this just happened in the past week, they entered peace talks with Saudi Arabia uh, over the Houthi movement in the Yemeni civil war. <clears throat> which in and of itself is kind of groundbreaking because one, we talked about the Yemen civil war. Um, I think it was one episode two or three <clears throat> and they've been in a, you know, regional power uh, fight with Saudi Arabia for years now. I mean, they've effectively had issues ever since the, the Iranian revolution with Saudi Arabia. And there's been very much a, a tension between those two. But the fact that they're sitting at the peace table talking about a way to end the Yemen conflict and they're starting to restore diplomatic relations with each other is a pretty significant change in the geopolitical status quo in the Middle East. And the most concerning part about this, I mean, we love peace. We love people coming to a negotiating table. That's great. 
but it was China that brokered this deal. And we don't have any details on what the deal entails, but the fact that China got them to the table and got them to agree to, you know, hammering out a deal and actually reestablishing formal diplomatic communications with each other and negotiating, that's just one more area where China is is kind of beating out the U.S. in pretty much every key factor. And we'll, I'm sure they're going to be talked about a little later on this list by the looks of it. But, yeah, China made that happen. Not us, not the U.N. It was China. They got everyone to the table to talk about ending the Yemen civil war. Hell, maybe China will solve the FSO Saffer situation that I went on about a few episodes back. Um, at any rate, what they say is a politically isolated Iran, I actually would say is becoming a little less true. Iran's got relations they're developing with Russia. They've got, you know, they're isolated from the West, but they're not isolated in the world. There's, they're making friends and they're making inroads. And depending upon how things with Saudi Arabia and Iran go, this could be the start of a very different set of, of geopolitical consequences in the Middle East for the U.S., for the West, and could very much change China's amount of sway in that region. So I think that is absolutely a concern, but probably not what they were necessarily meaning when they wrote this article a couple months ago. All right. Rise of inflation, number four. So obviously, uh, with the rise of inflation, that increases the odds of a global recession, which um, is true, will stoke uh, social and political instability and distance everywhere. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um I think we, you know, inflation has been outrageous since COVID, and um, yeah, that's that's a factor for all of us. I mean, I think every single person listening to this is, has been bit on some level by inflation. You've noticed it. You've seen it. Um, you know, what's a banana cost? $10? It's fine. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's clearly been an issue. Number three, big tech. Uh, so in this, it looks like they kind of talk about how it affects democracy, disinformation, artificial intelligence, and surveillance. Now, yeah, big tech definitely is a factor. I mean, does any of this stuff change in 2023, or is this more of a 2024 problem with our next election cycle? You know, that'll be the thing. Um, at the end of the day, the existence of extremely – at the end of the day – Technology allows news to spread really, really fast. I mean, news spreads at a speed that is completely unheard of in prior generations. Uh, if there's a riot in Tehran, you're getting live tweets of it as it's happening rather than waiting for a reporter to get to the presses and a few days later it's out in a newspaper across the world. I mean, it's just the speed of the sharing of information is is phenomenal. It's incredible, and that's you know, in and of itself, a good thing. On the other hand, you've got um, the spread of disinformation. I mean, I don't know how many times I get uh, a call from one of my parents or my grandparents who saw a random, turns out to be bullshit article on the internet. They don't know how to research it. They just assume because it's been printed and they saw it on the internet that it's it's a whole cold, hard fact. And there's a reason why I research stuff as much as I do, because there's so much bullshit out there. I mean, not even focusing on bias of the author. There's just so much bullshit that actually getting down to the truth of what happened and the truth and the facts as best we can get to them is really difficult and a bit time consuming. And the fact of the matter is with the internet, while we love the spread of information, the spread of disinformation is staggering. And most people don't 
think critically about what they're reading and really think through, okay, how much of this logically makes sense, how much of this is actually true, and then do the work to try and dig up the facts on it. And so, yeah, that's that's a big issue, and I think that that, that in and of itself contributes to a huge amount of the other problems that we see, the fears of inflation, the political polarization, and everything else that's going on. I mean, all that kind of ties back to big tech and, and the spread of both information and, and misinformation. So, yeah, definitely see that as an issue. Um, number two, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping uh, the premier president of China, so I've already done a whole Xi Jinping episode, uh, which you guys can listen to if you haven't already. So I'm not going to go into all of the ins and outs of that. Uh, but what I will say is that, yeah, this is a, a serious issue. In fact, I'm surprised this really isn't number one. In my opinion, I think it probably ought to be. Um, Xi Jinping is is continuing to push China forward as the, the preeminent power in the world, moving it towards that status. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, which I talked about, the Nine Dash Line, uh, crisis, which we all know about, um, you know, this year the announcement of the no limits friendship with Russia, quote unquote, which is a concerning thing. I mean, they've really doubled down on that relationship with Russia. They just got done being the ones responsible for helping broker a peace deal and resume negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which means their leverage and their power in the Middle East is significantly increasing compared to what it was, which is at a time when ours is. At least I say ours, the U.S., is not at its height. Um, and, of course, their continued propping up of the uh, the hermit kingdom of North Korea. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot there to think about. There's a lot there to, to be concerned with. Xi Jinping is definitely making some major power moves. And at the end of the day, is there anybody in a position to stand up to him or stop him? And so far, the answer to that has been more or less no. You know, most of Europe, if they get the threat of trade being cut off, they'll not criticize them. And the worst thing the U.S. has done is occasionally have tea with Taiwan and uh, sail ships through the South China Seas. And that that's it. That's, that's all we got the energy for. So... Yeah, I, uh, I I see China as being kind of the, the – that should have been number one on this list. Uh, the actual number one, however, appears to be Vladimir Putin's Russia. Um, and, of course, they cite the uh, the whole Ukraine war thing. Is Now, I do think this is a big issue. Probably, you know, it definitely deserves to be on the top ten list, no doubt about it. Uh, that being said, I think the fact that the war is on, what, its 14th month at this point kind of – tells us what we need to know about the state of the Russian military, or at least their ground forces and their air forces. Um, you know, it's just not the threat we all thought it was. I mean, yeah, they're they're causing a lot of problems for Ukraine, but it's not like they invaded, you know, not like they invaded Florida and we, uh, you know, had to deal with that. Um, that being said, the invasion of Ukraine definitely kind of goes back to Putin's sort of neo-Czarist Soviet expansion kind of thing that he's got going on. What with first, you know, taking the Donbass and parts of Georgia and then parts of, um, you know, taking the Crimea. And now he's just going in for the whole thing. And I'm curious to see where it goes. The The biggest issue is not that Russia's going to steamroll Europe and cause like this Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising nightmare the real issue that we have to be a little bit concerned with is, you know, how does Putin extract himself from this conflict and save a little bit of face? And I think that's the big threat. Um, he started rattling, you know, making the nuclear saber, saber rattling 
uh, last year. And now he's starting to do it again. He's saying he's moving nukes into Belarus and he's not above using nukes in a tactical way, um, even in a non-nuclear conflict. And so, I mean, at what point is he going to be pushed into that corner and he's going to do something crazy that there has to be a response to? And at what point, um, you know, does he cross that line? And and it all comes down to Putin's got to find a way to have a quote-unquote win in this war in a way that doesn't make it look like he... Um, you know, shit the bed. So that's, that's the concern there. And, you know, let's be honest, there's the, the political relations that they're developing with China, which is increasing dramatically. Iran, they're getting weapons from them. They've got, uh, surprisingly good relations with Hungary and Turkey, which are both NATO members. And they've been working really hard to drive a bit of a wedge between NATO and those nations. And even in the new world, they've, you know, done military deployments. They're talking about building an air base down in Venezuela. So, you know, we may have a Russian air base in the new world, which um, would be kind of wild. So at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense of, um, you know, I get the concern that that Putin's making moves and trying to get Russia back in the world as a major player. Uh, But I would say that, you know, Xi Jinping is way more calculated and way more on top of his game. And, and, you know, he's, about 18 steps ahead in the race than, than Vladimir Putin. Uh, that being said, an alliance between those two, bad news. So anyway, that is the top 10 list of geopolitical threats in 2023, according to U.S. News and Global Report. Uh, let me know what you think, if that's accurate, or if there's something else you think is probably more pressing up there. Um, but yeah, I think that you know more or less covers some things. So, um, yeah, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I was not listed as a threat, top 10 or otherwise, in 2023. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. We'll be right back.